For those of you who've not been here, we're in a series through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah was a man who had been in Persia. He was Jewish, and uh, he and uh, some of the Jewish people had been captive there. Uh, during that time, Jerusalem in Judah, that was the southern kingdom, had been destroyed, and King Artaxerxes had given him permission to return with some of the men and women to reconstruct the wall. The wall was critical to protecting Jerusalem, and so um, Nehemiah uh, journeyed more than 800 miles from Persia to Jerusalem, and uh, his crews of construction laborers to rebuild that wall. That's why he's there. And all sorts of things have happened to him during that time. Nehemiah 5 and verse 14 starts another section in this book. Notice verse 14 reads, Moreover, from the time that I, Nehemiah, was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, a total of 12 years that would be, Nehemiah had been promoted. I mentioned in the introduction to this book that Nehemiah probably wrote this historical account of what happened at Jerusalem himself. So he decided to insert a section on how he had been made governor. Nehemiah is described in this passage acting as the governor of this entire southern region called Judah, and that included Jerusalem. Nehemiah's tenure as governor, as we just read, lasted for 12 consecutive years. He had received a significant promotion. He had been promoted from being a general contractor in charge of that huge reconstruction project to the actual governor of Judah and Jerusalem. That meant Nehemiah had had a career change. Going from a building contractor to a high-level politician was a definite career change. His job description had radically changed. Nehemiah had been promoted. That reminds me of Psalm 75. Uh, that's a psalm from someone named Asaph. We don't know much about Asaph, except that he wrote 12 of the psalms. Uh, this particular psalm was a song that was intended to be sung, which I am not going to do. Notice verse 5. Do not, do not lift up your horn on high. That is a figurative phrase that means don't talk about yourself so much. Don't be so braggadocious. Verse 5 continues. Do not, once more, do not speak with a stiff neck. In a more literal sense, this stiffness of someone's neck implies that someone is unable to bend his head and assume a more humble posture. Uh, someone that has a figurative stiff neck has a serious pride problem. There is no justifiable reason for self-pride because promotion doesn't result from just us in and of ourselves. Verse 6, for exaltation, exaltation means to elevate someone. Exaltation means an advancement and promotion. For exaltation and promotion comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. 
Now think through this. If someone's promotion doesn't come from the east, west, or the south, then there's just one possible direction left and that is it originated from the north that has significance because according to scripture the third heaven where God's headquarters is where God's throne is the third heaven is located in the region of the north so this verse is teaching us that exaltation and promotion is an act of God from heaven verse 7 confirms that But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts or promotes another. God demotes people and God promotes people because promotion is from God. If we're fortunate enough to be promoted, remember we have no right to be arrogant and proud about our advanced status because that promotion wasn't from our doing. Promotions come from God himself. A farmer once said, if he ever found a turtle sitting on top of a fence post, it was apparent to him that turtle didn't get there by himself. Someone else put him there. A person's advancement isn't just the result of his own initiative and self-effort. That's part of it but that's not the essence of it. If someone gets the proverbial corner office, if someone goes from sitting on the bench to the starting lineup, if someone receives sales bonuses that no one else is getting, if someone is moved to upper management, then it was because the sovereign hand of God picked him up from where he was and then put him somewhere else. Just like that turtle, he didn't get there on his own. The problem is, a non-Christian doesn't see personal advancement as the Christian perceives it. To the secular person, promotion comes from being in the right place at the right time, knowing the right person and or persons, and then pulling the right strings and scratching the right back. In the music and movie industries, promotion sometimes comes after sleeping with a particular producer or casting director. The most recent example of that is Harvey Weinstein, or Swinestein as some call him, because he's an immoral pig. He's a former famous movie producer and is now a convicted sex offender. More than 80 women filed allegations of sexual abuse against him. He's behind bars where he should be, and where I hope he remains until he assumes room temperature. That is not, though, how promotion comes to us. God is the one who lifted Joseph from an Egyptian dungeon to the role of prime minister. God is the one that exalted Daniel from a Babylonian boot camp to the king's right-hand man. God is the one that promoted Amos, an ignorant fig picker, to the sophisticated halls of Bethel to be his personal spokesman. And in this book, God is the one that promoted Nehemiah from being a cupbearer, butler, combination butler bodyguard, to Alexerxes in the beginning part of this book, then promoted him to being a general contractor, rebuilding Jerusalem, and then now to becoming governor of that entire region. Essentially, Nehemiah has received two promotions here. God originates 
and orchestrates someone's promotion. Notice Proverbs 29, verse 2. When the righteous are in authority, meaning if those that are committed to doing the right thing have been promoted to government positions, uh, corporate positions, academic positions, other positions in a societal sense, if that happens, notice, the people rejoice. If a righteous person has been promoted to strategic or authoritative positions, such as middle and upper management, then those that are beneath them are going to rejoice in that person's promotion. People are relieved to know that someone above them understands them and wants what is best for them. It is an accurate statement that if the righteous are promoted to responsible positions, then the people rejoice. Notice, though, the second half of this verse. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Oh, that was interactive. Okay. (laughs) Millions of people have groaned under Fidel Castro, under Mao Zedong, under the butcher Joseph Stalin and Hugo Chavez. And people are now groaning under Vladimir Putin. And Ukraine is the most recent and unfortunate example of that. And he is a wicked, wicked man. According to the latest polls, in these United States, most of our population are also groaning under the present administration. One of our friends from Southern California just purchased gas for his Ford 150 pickup. His total bill to fill up his tank was $200, since it was $6 a gallon. And that was regular 87 octane not premium gas. And he was moaning and groaning about that. He then sent me a text that read, I checked Kelly Blue Book today for my car's value, and it asked if the tank was full or empty. (laughs) That's how serious it's getting. If the wicked are promoted to elevated positions, then there's inevitable corruption and possible catastrophic consequences as per Ukraine. People underneath them are going to regret that those persons are in control. There are two reasons the wicked often rule. Reason one, there are more of them that are available to rule than there are the righteous. There are more of them that are available to rule than are the righteous. The righteous are the minority population. Second, The righteous are often reluctant to rule. Those that are righteous are sometimes reluctant to rule. Some people are just hesitant to accept a promotion and take advantage of opportunities to advance, and that's sometimes unfortunate. There are times where someone should turn down a particular promotion. If a promotion up the corporate ladder means a step down in a spiritual sense, then that promotion should be rejected. It doesn't matter what the financial benefits are. That sort of promotion doesn't warrant risking our spiritual health for. There are three advantages of being promoted, each of which should encourage someone to at least consider the promotion. The first advantage is position. 
This is another position as a result of that promotion. And in that advanced position, you can become more. Become more. Promotion can give someone a position that enables them to learn a new skill set. It gives them a position where this person can mature in different areas and become a more complete person. It can also enable them to have personal associations they otherwise would not have had. And that promotion means someone has advanced to become a more visible and accessible contact person for Jesus Christ. Advantage number two is power. Power in that advanced position. You can do more. Do more. People resemble rubber bands. We're rubber bands, essentially. A rubber band is of no value unless it's being stretched. Sometimes a promotion can stretch us and enable us to do so much more than if we hadn't been promoted. Advantage number three is privilege. Privilege. And in that privileged position, you can have more. Have more. A promotion often means more income. I don't believe money should be the singular determining factor in accepting or rejecting a promotion. I do believe, though, that God sometimes wants to bless us in a financial sense, and a promotion might be the means he uses to do that. Nehemiah had been promoted, and as governor of Judah, he had been given some special privileges. These were privileges he did not have before his promotion. This section, beginning at verse 14 and going through verse 19, describes just how Nehemiah handled the promotional privileges he had now that he was governor. This is how he handled those privileges. And two principles are, <clears throat> two principles are illustrated here. One, Nehemiah did not use some of his privileges. Nehemiah did not use some of his privileges. One of the privileges Nehemiah had been given was a food allowance. He had an expense account to be used primarily for purchasing food. But notice the end of verse 14. Nehemiah said, Neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. This phrase, the governor's provisions, referred to his allotted expense account that was to be used primarily to purchase food. It's interesting that he didn't use that particular privilege allotted to him. That, though, doesn't mean he didn't have a need to use that privilege. Actually, he had a serious need to use that privilege. Notice verse 17. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers, meaning at his dinner table were 150 Jews and rulers, besides, meaning in addition to, those guests who came to us from the nations around us. Inflation is at this moment at 7.9%. Some economists, though, estimate the actual percentage is much higher. We are all aware that groceries are getting more and more expensive. But consider this situation. 
Nehemiah, as governor of Judah, had to feed on a consistent basis his entire gubernatorial staff of some 150 persons plus visiting dignitaries from surrounding nations. He was feeding at a single meal at least 150 people plus visiting dignitaries. That could have meant feeding as much as 200 people. That's, that's crazy. That's unbelievable to have to feed that many people at a setting. Verse 18, notice what Nehemiah had to have in order to feed that large group of people. Verse 18, now that which was prepared daily, daily, was one ox, an adult male ox, weighs between 1,500 and 3,000 pounds, that is a large, large animal, and six choice sheep, an adult male sheep can weigh more than 300 pounds, also fowl, meaning different birds, were prepared for me, and once every 10 days, an abundance of all kinds of wine. Now please notice, that was a total carnivore diet. There aren't even any vegetables in there. This is carnivore, just total carnivore. Apparently, Nehemiah didn't subscribe to the idea that eating meat contributes to climate change. Someone said, I now eat twice as much meat just so that one vegan who thinks he or she is making a difference is actually making no difference at all. <clears throat> Good idea. Problem is, I can't afford meat at this juncture. Uh, it's, out of, it's insane. That was the daily regiment of food needed to feed that entire group of people he was obligated to feed. But for 12 consecutive years, as acting governor of Judah, Nehemiah did not use his legitimate food allowance. It would not have been wrong had he done that. He chose not to do that, not even once. He footed that entire food bill himself. Now, understand something. Nehemiah's promotion from general contractor to governor must have meant he had received a substantial raise in income or else he had brought enough money with him from Persia to fund his tenure as governor. He must have been subsidized or he couldn't have afforded to feed all those people but Nehemiah refused to use the allotted expense account given to him as governor notice in verse 18 Nehemiah mentioned the food items he needed on a daily basis and then he cited the reason he didn't use his allotted expense account notice verse 18 Yet in spite of this, meaning in spite of this enormous amount of food that was needed on a daily basis, I did not demand the governor's provisions. Now don't miss this. Why did he decline that expense account? Because the bondage was heavy on this people. Nehemiah said the reason he didn't use this expense account allotted to him for food was that he didn't want to burden the people any more than they were already burdened. Nehemiah was sensitive to the needs of the people he was governing. As you know, as is our own governor, just, just like that, just the same thing. 
Okay, maybe not. Um, the economic burden the people had to bear was already excessive. The people were being taxed from all sides in addition to having reduced individual incomes because of their long hours of volunteer laboring on this wall. Nehemiah didn't want to add to that burden that the people were bearing. Most of them, remember there was a famine, most of them had barely enough food to feed themselves and Nehemiah was unselfish enough to be sensitive to the needs of his people. He said, no, no, no. If I use this allowance allocated to me, then it will, it will become an added financial burden on the people and I cannot in good conscience do that. I just will not do that. So no. The lesson Nehemiah is teaching us is that just because we have the right to do something doesn't mean that we should necessarily do that something. One more time, just because we have the right to do something, we're entitled to it, it's a legitimate right, no egality involved, just because we have the right to do something doesn't mean that we should necessarily do that something. It might be better if we forfeited that right, if it could be for the betterment of the whole. Dr. W.A. Criswell, Wally Amos Criswell, pastored Mega Mega Church, First Baptist Church in Dallas for five decades, considered to be the greatest <coughs> expository preacher from the last century. Dr. Billy Graham was a member of that congregation uh, during... Dr. Criswell's tenure there. And during that time, Dr. Criswell, I had an opportunity to meet him once at First Baptist Church, sat on the front row and uh, next to him, and he was very kind and gracious. I had Hopi's Bible. He signed it for her. He wore to the pulpit every Sunday a white suit, every Sunday. And during that time as pastor, he had made some profitable investments and was financially secure enough, he didn't feel he needed an income from the church. So he declined that. Some pastors now are successful authors and receive substantial income from book sales and so also decline an income from the church. And that eases the congregational burden on meeting the budget. I wish I were in that most blessed financial position to do that but I'm not. Notice this leadership principle. Losers focus on their rights. Leaders focus on their responsibilities. Losers focus on their rights. Leaders focus on their responsibilities. It could be that we have a legitimate right to do something that could benefit us. It could be of substantial benefit to us. But if we are a responsible person, if we are an other's person, an unselfish person, it might be better if we forfeited that right and privilege for the betterment of someone else. Part of the problem is that some of those that have been promoted to elevated positions become part of the elitist class. And then as elitist, become insensitive to the needs of the people beneath them. Probably none of them would admit to that, but their actions would confirm that is true. In contrast, I have known pastors that during difficult financial times have, on a voluntary basis, taken sizable reductions 
in salary. I've never been in that situation where that was necessary. If I were in a similar situation, I feel confident I would do the same thing. Most pastors um, charge a fee to conduct weddings, uh, to conduct funerals, memorial services. I never have. Never have I charged, and never would I. I just feel that's part of my job description as a spiritual shepherd, and it is, um, it is a, uh, something I should do and something that I am grateful I can do. So I've never charged. In each of the seven congregations I've pastored, I've turned down salary increases. I've done that here multiple times. Our church has been very generous to me. When we first came, the church was very small. And I, we knew we would take an enormous uh, cut in income, almost 50% to even come here. We said, we'll do that. God wants us here. We'll do that. And the elders said, if you come, as God blesses the church, we will bless you. They kept that promise, and I have been more than blessed. The church has been generous to me, and so much so I have never felt I deserved the compensation I do receive. Nehemiah was extremely sensitive to his people and their needs. He decided not to use some of the privileges he had been allotted as governor because he didn't want to add to the financial burden his people were already bearing. Second, notice, Nehemiah did not abuse any of his privileges. This is interesting. Nehemiah didn't use some of his privileges and Nehemiah didn't abuse any of his privileges. This was in direct contrast to those men that earlier governed Judah. Notice verse 15. But the former governors who were before me, these were his predecessors, laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine, besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people. Those former governors of Judah had made a number of unrealistic demands on the people and started overtaxing them. Those men were guilty of promotion erosion, meaning that their promotions to these strategic positions ruling the people had changed them. Some people are promoted and that promotion then goes to their head and causes them to act as if God had died and left them in charge. Some people receive a promotion and then start power tripping and demeaning employees and bossing around subordinates. That's called promotion erosion. In addition to overtaxing the people, those former governors had also been putting unqualified, untrained, incompetent people into government bureaucratic positions. Notice the phrase at the end of verse 15. Even their servants bear rule over the people. So these former governors and former administrations had been using non-management, untrained, unskilled types to subject the people to unreasonable rule. Those servants had no business ruling the people, but the governors appointed them to do that. Remember this leadership principle. Leadership is not lordship. Leadership is not lordship. Those governors were lording over people. 
instead of leading people. It's interesting to me that human behavior doesn't seem to change over the centuries. Politicians now still place unqualified relatives and friends and uh, associates into strategic bureaucratic positions. Not those who are the most qualified, not those most educated, not those most experienced, but those people that are owed favors and those people that are related to them. That's called nepotism and favoritism and that's wrong. Happens all the time. It's wrong. That's similar to what those former Jerusalem and Judea governors had done. Judah's uh, former administrations had exploited the people and had taken advantage of them. But notice that Nehemiah said in verse 15, Nehemiah 5, verse 15, but the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people, but I did not do so. I refused to do so, he said. Nehemiah had just commented on how previous governors and administrations had exploited the people, but that had all happened in the past. And Nehemiah insisted, that is not who I am. I am not guilty of the things my predecessors did. I did not and would never exploit the people. Nehemiah did not abuse his privileges as governor. This is one of the reasons a promotion can be problematic. If someone is promoted, there is sometimes this subtle temptation to take unfair advantage of and to abuse certain privileges. That's the reason we shouldn't stretch a 30-minute lunch into an hour. And we shouldn't pad our expense accounts, meaning to charge a business or a corporate entity for non-business-related personal expenses. I have mentioned this gentleman of late. One of the classic examples of promotional privilege abuse was Jim Baker, former founder and director of the PTL Empire. PTL supposedly meant praise the Lord. He's the disgraced televangelist that published a 647-page book entitled, I Was Wrong. Throughout that particular volume, he repeatedly apologized for his financial and sexual misconduct. The picture on the left was him then, and the picture on the right is of him now. Ultimately, he was arrested after deceiving some 116,000, quote, lifetime partners at his Heritage USA theme park, he deceived them out of more than $158 million. In 1989, he was convicted on 24 counts of defrauding the public, and specifically he was found guilty of defrauding those supporters through selling them lifetime partnerships, promising them lifetime rights at the Heritage Theme Park in Fort Mills, South Carolina. Baker oversold the lodging units he had promised them and then used the funds to pay PTL operating expenses and support a, an ex extravagant lifestyle. Critics argue that PTL at that juncture actually meant pass the loot, not praise the Lord. Uh, those excesses are fully documented. Baker and his then-wife Tammy Faye, she is now deceased, 
owned six luxurious homes. Jim Baker purchased expensive exotic cars, such as Rolls Royces. The Bakers were found guilty of appointing themselves thousands of dollars in bonuses and unreasonable expense accounts. I might add, it was rumored, it has been rumored that the Bakers had an air-conditioned doghouse. Um, I found that bizarre, did some investigation. Pretty sure that was an urban legend. Uh, that didn't happen. Baker was removed from his position at the PTL network, <laughs> stripped of his ordination papers by the Assembly of God denomination, and then spent five years in an eight-foot by 12-foot prison cell where his basic job was to clean toilets. It was there Jim Baker said that he was able to see things in the Bible he'd never seen before. Ultimately, he said he repented of his sin. He repudiated his former prosperity gospel. And since then, <clears throat> according to him, he has made a conscious effort to right his previous wrongs. Now, I can't testify to the authenticity of that repentance. I hope that has been the case. I do know the royalties from his book <clears throat> went into an escrow account for the IRS and outstanding attorney fees so that he did not personally benefit financially from its publication, and that is a good thing. Some of his friends and former associates have testified that Jim Baker started out as sincere and authentic and unpretentious until PTL started getting bigger and larger and larger and larger and thus promoting him to a celebrity status. Jim Baker was an unfortunate victim of this promotion erosion and he ended up in prison for abusing his privileges. It happens in secular society. Members of diplomatic staffs in foreign embassies or consulates sometimes abuse the civil and or criminal codes in host countries because these people know they have diplomatic immunity from prosecution and the threat of being expelled and sent home doesn't seem to be a deterrent. Some of this is much more serious than this. The most benign and most common example of diplomatic abuse, though, is illegal parking. Get this. Diplomats at the United Nations headquartered in New York City, those diplomats see Manhattan as their own private parking lot. Some time ago, during one 12-month period, those diplomats racked up 143,508 parking tickets in a 12-month period. Those 143,508 parking tickets should have cost them $15.8 million in fines. But it didn't because those diplomats and representatives from foreign governments had diplomatic immunity. I might add, Russia alone was responsible for 32,000 of those tickets. Are we surprised? I'm not. The question is, what prevented Nehemiah from abusing those privileges that he'd been given as governor? What prevented him and protected him from uh, this promotion erosion and this potential abuse? There were two basic things. Notice, one, Nehemiah had a fear of God. Nehemiah had a fear of God, a definite fear of God. 
Notice verse 15. One more time. But the former governors who were before me <coughs> laid burdens on the people, but I did not do so. And the reason he didn't was, notice, because of the fear of God. He didn't abuse those privileges. He wasn't guilty of corruption because of the fear of God. To fear God doesn't mean to cower down and be terrified of God. But to fear God means to have a serious respect for God. One of the reasons Nehemiah didn't give in to this temptation and abuse some of those privileges was that he had an awesome reverential respect for God. Let me illustrate that. Uh, we have three sons. Our middle son, Josh, is a journeyman electrician that works for BART. BART is an acronym. B-A-R-T means Bay Area Rapid Transit. BART is a system of electric trains that serve the greater San Francisco area through 50 BART stations located on 130 miles of BART track. I might add, some of that track goes through a tube underneath the bay, under the water, underneath the bay. That's nuts. BART averages 411,000 riders per day. This is a picture of Josh. Josh is in the foreground. He has the blue helmet on. He's on his knees. He's working. The other three are acting like <laughs> construction workers for the state, just standing around, doing nothing and watching him work. Um, Josh is a, an extremely hard worker, and we are very proud of him as his parents. And Josh does construction projects on BART. He doesn't do maintenance. Uh, if he were forced to do maintenance, he would probably uh, go somewhere else. Uh, but he enjoys construction. So he's often forced to work with as much as 34,500 volts of electricity, and sometimes up to 8,000 amps. Sometimes he has to wear flame-retardant clothing because of the potential arc flash and arc blast. Josh isn't terrified of electricity, or he wouldn't be an electrician, but he has great respect for electricity. He has great respect for that much electrical voltage, so that he is extremely careful and takes extraordinary precautions to protect himself and protect his crew because he understands the consequences of not doing that. We aren't to be terrified of God, or we couldn't be close to Him in a relational sense, but we are to have serious respect for Him, because there are consequences if we don't. Hebrews 10 verse 31 reads, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Nehemiah was afraid of how God could react to him if he were to abuse some of those privileges. Fearing God, as we are to do, has both positive and negative dimensions. In a positive sense, there should be an awesome awareness of who God is. There should be this awesome awareness of just who God is, in part so that we might be attracted to him for salvation. In a negative sense, there should be an awesome awareness of what God might do. An awesome awareness of what God might do so that we 
have a deterrent to committing sin. That negative dimension is a dreadful concern about the results from violating God's holy nature. Proverbs 16 verse 6, notice, And by the fear of the Lord one departs from evil. In being aware of what God might do, it creates in us a motivation to run from committing evil. It is that second aspect that is the awareness Nehemiah had. He was aware that God could severely discipline him if he were to abuse his privileges as governor. (laughs) This particular dimension is something that secular society doesn't have. The classic passage on this absence is found in Romans 3.18 where it reads, There is no fear of God before their eyes. That describes our society at the present. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul describes our depraved condition as missing a reverential awe and respect for God and what God could do if we continued in our sin. I heard about three men that flagged down a taxi cab on a crowded street on a Saturday night in New York City. The men jumped into the cab, one in the front seat, two in the back, and noticed an older gentleman sitting in the back seat off to the side in the corner. These three men got inside and started to laugh and joke about the hedonistic evening they had planned for themselves. It promised to be a night committed to sin and debauchery and moral degeneration. And this old man sat there hearing this and he didn't act amused at what was being said. And those men noticed that. And so these men started to ridicule him and make fun of him. And one of them said, old man, why don't you join us? Why don't you just join us tonight? He said, no, thank you. That particular reprobate responded, and just why is it? Why don't you want to come with us? That old man paused for a moment, stared at each one of them with a serious look on his face, and said, you probably don't understand this, but the reason I can't join you is because I fear God. And so should we. We should fear God. Baby boomers should remember this. Songwriter Jim Croce died in a plane crash at age 30. He had an amazing career ahead of him. Um, He wrote some unusual songs. In his song, You Don't Mess Around with Jim, some of us remember that, the most memorable lyrics were these. You don't tug on Superman's cape. You don't spit into the wind. You don't pull the mask off that old Long Ranger. And instead of you don't mess around with Jim, I'm suggesting you don't mess around with God either. Because God because of his inherent holiness, his intrinsic holiness, God is obligated to react negatively to what we do. Therefore, he is someone that should be feared. We don't need God on our case. So if we're tempted to commit sin, we should consider what his reaction toward us might be if we do what we are about to do. Nehemiah had a genuine fear of God. That kept him on the straight and narrow. The second reason Nehemiah didn't abuse his privileges was that Nehemiah wanted favor from God. Nehemiah wanted favor from God. Verse 19. 
Remember me, he said, my God, for good. For good, meaning for favor, for blessing, for benefit. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all I have done for this people. Blessing and favor come from God as a result of sincere obedience to God. Nehemiah did what God wanted him to do in part because he wanted God to bless him and extend favor toward him. Notice what has happened here. Nehemiah didn't want what he would have gotten from God had he abused his privileges. And Nehemiah did want what he would get from God if he didn't abuse his privileges. Nehemiah didn't want to suffer adverse consequences from his sin of abusing his privileges. And Nehemiah wanted favor and blessing from God as a result of not abusing his privileges. Because of those factors, Nehemiah resisted this temptation to give in and abuse some of the privileges that were allotted to him as governor of Judea. Some time ago, on an extremely hot afternoon, (coughs) crews of men were at work on the roadbed of a railroad when a slow-moving train stopped, interrupted that work, The train ground to a stop in a window in the last car, which was a custom-made car, was raised. The window was raised. Someone's voice called out to the crew chief, Dave Anderson, is that you? Dave, if that's you, come on in here. After that simple exchange, Dave Anderson was invited to join Jim Murphy, who happened to be the president of that railroad. For almost an hour, David gone inside the car. The two men were engaged in conversation and then hugged as the train pulled out. And Dave's crew immediately surrounded him once he had come out of that car back to them and act amazed that he was a personal friend of the president of that railroad. Dave explained to them that more than two decades earlier, he and Jim Murphy had started to work for that railroad on the exact same day. They'd known each other ever since, although they didn't often see one another. One of his crew members, half joking and half serious, then asked Dave, then why is it he was still working outside in the heat and Jim had been promoted to president? His response was a classic. He said this, because 23 years ago, I went to work for $5.25 an hour, and Jim Murphy went to work for the railroad. There's a difference. Nehemiah didn't agree to tackle that almost impossible Jerusalem project for a six-figure income plus benefits. He didn't receive and accept that assignment so that he might get special privileges from Artaxerxes. But he journeyed some 800 miles to Jerusalem. He specifically went there on a mission from God to rebuild that protective wall around Jerusalem and reestablish Jewish life inside that holy city. He was successful at doing that in record time. And that's the reason he was promoted. Dr. Gene Getz in his 80s now, former professor at Moody Bible Institute and Dallas Theological Seminary. He's authored some 60 books 
I have used much of his material in this series. He's an amazing teacher. Dr. Gene Guest put together a fantastic prayer of commitment that will help us if promotional opportunities come to us. It's included on the sermon note sheet. Notice, let me read this. Dear God, I will accept with gratitude the opportunities for advancement you allow to come my way. I will, however, count the cost to me personally and particularly to my family, so that I will not violate any biblical priorities. But I will not withdraw simply because I fear failure or am unwilling to accept the accountability that accompanies a responsibility, nor will I refuse the opportunity because of a misguided point of view that Christians should not seek or consider prestigious positions. On the other hand, I realize that Satan will work harder in my life if I accept advancement. To counter these attacks, I will use the position as an opportunity to grow spiritually. I will consider this promotion as a better platform to also advance my Christian witness. Though I believe it is appropriate to use my improved financial situation to create a better sense of security for my family, I will also do all I can to be a good steward and give more to advance the work of your church. I will never abuse the privileges accompanying my promotion, financially or in any other way. I will not exploit others or become guilty of a conflict of interest. To accomplish these goals, I will discharge my responsibilities in the fear of God, realizing you alone has made this opportunity possible. I will also do all I can to use my position as a servant to others, meeting their needs and improving their lot in life. In turn, Lord, I believe you will reward me personally, both now and eternally." Because I view my work as your work, and because I have been faithful to your principles, I will do all I can to make sure my motives honor you first and foremost, and not myself. In Jesus' name, amen. If a promotion should be presented to you, then read this prayer to God, if you can mean it, and then sign it, and date it, and I believe God will bless you for doing that. Let's bow our heads. Father, I realize there are many people in this congregation uh, who are retired. So this probably isn't applicable to them, but there are many others that in recent months have received a promotion, or in future months might be offered a promotion. So I pray, God, that if those opportunities come, that those people who have heard this message will respond to that promotion as Nehemiah did, will determine to be a person of character and not abuse any of the privileges and benefits that come with that promotion, but will use that promotion as a means of bettering their family, their church, and most of all, bettering your kingdom. Nehemiah has so much to teach us, and I pray that we're learning much from his life and example. Again, thank you for your goodness, and thank you so much for your word and the lessons therein. And I thank you in the name of your mighty son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen.